Hello, JP. Hello, Whip. So today we are going to cover a new topic. We, we are going to cover a, a new topic and, and we're going to talk about um, dialectical behavior therapy. Okay. And, and this fits within our um, core uh, material. Uh, sometimes these skills are important to engage patients. Okay. Um, other times, uh, these are important to shift and change uh, behaviors that are that are there. And so, I'm going to talk a bit about dialectical behavior uh, therapy. Okay. Um, usually, when I do this talk, I have a bit of a whiteboard, but let's just see how it. Uh, we'll see do how it, it without the whiteboard today. We're with, yeah, we are. We are without the whiteboard. So, I'm going to look up the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And the reason I'm going to do that is because I think, I think it's really important to know which diagnosis this therapy is known to really, really help with. And borderline personality disorder in the olden days, uh, the reason they called it borderline, because uh, they had this old classman criteria where people were either on the neurotic side. Classman. Classment. Classes. Classic. Classic. Classes. <laughs> Placement, um, categorical categories. Okay. Is classmen not all? I don't know. It, it, it's you know a lot of words I don't know, so I'm just trying to figure that one out. Yeah. So, so they had categories, right? Okay. So usually, uh, if you had some kind of mental health problem, you're either on the neurotic spectrum. So neurotic used to be like depression, anxiety, um, whatever mood, things like that. And then there was a psychotic spectrum where okay. uh, your perception of reality is, is off. And can you guess why they called it borderline? Because you're have kind of on the border of one to the other? Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, you're, you, you, it's hard to know which side the person is on because sometimes they'll seem completely psychotic, like their perception of reality is wrong. They'll seem to be interpreting things completely in an inaccurate way. Uh, and then other times they'll seem more on that high end of the anxiety and those kinds of things. So the diagnostic criteria for borderline personality disorder is you need five of these nine consistently. So there's frantic efforts to avoid abandonment. There's unstable personal, interpersonal relationships where you sometimes alternate between loving and hating people. Oh, this person's amazing. Oh, I hate them. I hope they die, whatever it might be. There's identity disturbance, so they're not really sure who they are like uh, at any point. Um, there may be some self-damaging impulsivity in at least two areas that aren't suicidal. So areas like um, uh, binge eating, spending sprees, anger, violence, things like that. They'll have suicidal or parasuicidal behavior where they might harm themselves or cut themselves. They may have difficulty with emotions where they feel emotions really quite intensely. They'll have chronic emptiness, anger, or transient paranoia and uh, dissociation. And you can guess, I mean, I just said nine different symptoms or a whole bunch that were there. You really only need five of those nine for a sustained period of uh, time. And it's got to cause some kind of deficit in your work, personal, or uh, social life. Usually in about two of those areas, you'll, you'll see that. When they taught us originally about borderline personality disorder, you sort of thought that, oh, this is characterological. It's going to be there for most people's lives. But we know that's not the case. So as people get older, only about 30% of people keep that diagnosis. We look at that from age 20 to age 50. Because what happens is all the externalizing outward behaviors get better. So the anger gets better, the yelling gets better, the self-harm gets better. But sometimes the emptiness and the dysphoria really, really stays. 
So why is this relevant? So Marsha Linehan is a scientist. She's a scientist that uh, worked in New York. She's a psychologist. Uh, and she didn't say this early on, you know, um, but it came out, I think, in the mid-2000s, uh, before 2010, that she actually had this diagnosis herself. And so she, when she was 16, she was admitted as an inpatient to a psychiatric unit uh, in New York, and it was one where they have the most violent uh, kids that are there. And she was there for a full year. And following leaving that unit, she did a whole bunch of self-exploration. She trained to be a psychologist. Uh, she did some judo. She did some uh, mindfulness meditation. She went to um, some kind of a Buddhist uh, uh, temple of some kind. Uh, and then she came back as a scientist in the 70s. And she got funding to study suicidality through the NIH. And when she got funding to study suicidality, she thought they would send everybody to her. So who gets suicidal? People with depression, with psychosis, uh, people with the bipolar disorder, uh, people with uh, anxiety might get depressed, people with PTSD. But can you guess who they sent her? They sent her everyone with borderline personality uh, disorder. And, and the way she was trained is that she was trained actually in cognitive behavior therapy. And I don't know if you know anything about cognitive behavior bit. therapy. I know you know a little bit. Bunch. Um, but they, they tried, she tried to roll out cognitive behavior therapy with these, these patients, right? And, and it didn't work. And I don't know if you can guess why it wouldn't work. I don't know if you know what you do in cognitive behavior therapy. It's a read my mind kind of thing. So in cognitive behavior therapy, people have these cognitive distortions. So they think about things in a different way. Like all or none thinking, black and white, catastrophizing, that kind of stuff. Right. And what do you do in CBT? You're thinking wrong. You can't think that way. And how are people going to respond? They're going to get angry. How dare you say I shouldn't think this way? Anybody would think this way if your father abused you. Why wouldn't you think this way? And they would storm out and leave. And so CBT wasn't working with these patients. So she shifted her approach because she's a scientist, right? So she's trying out what's going to work, what's not going to work, what's going to work, what's not going to work. And what would be the natural opposite response? It would be the warm, poor you, let me help, we can do this. Validate. Uh, validate, compassion, care, support, all those things. And can you guess why that wouldn't work? Because it's a bottomless pit of validation? Yeah, actually that's exactly what happens. And then the other part is that um, you sometimes reinforce behavior that may not be in the person's best interest. So for example, if you have someone who is in extreme crisis, right, and all their, their, their parents are gone to Costa Rica, uh, they can't see their psychiatrist for a month, they self-harm, they end up in the eMERGE, uh, the, the team is so worried about suicidality, it's like, poor you, let me help, let me save you, why don't you um, come in? They call the psychiatrist, they're like, oh, can you see the person earlier? Um, they have a nurse working with them on skills. They call the family, the family cancels the flight, flies back in. And so all of a sudden, you're re reinforcing this behavior that may not be the most healthiest way of coping. Right. And so in the end, what she had to do was she had to find a way to balance it out. Right, because if you go change too fast and too hard, the person can tell you to screw off, and they're going to get so upset and storm out and leave. And if you're too validating, you're going to almost reinforce that that state. And so I don't know if you can guess what the answer is. The answer really is combining those two. So you have that acceptance, and you have that change, and you have that acceptance and change within the same sentence and statement. Okay. She has this phenomenal quote where the patient with borderline personality is like the third degree burn victim where even the lightest touch causes immense suffering. And, and, and I really like that, that metaphor, right? Because if I think of somebody when um, 
somebody ignores them, they don't make eye contact, they say, oh, you could have done this better, that's going to go really deep for that person that has those symptoms, right? Uh, and uh, it's going to really, really, really affect them. And so when you have that framework, it almost makes sense that they'd be acting and responding this way. So, so what makes somebody develop borderline personality disorder? And there, there's a lot of overlap with complex PTSD, um, uh, people that have had multiple traumas early on in, uh, in life. Um, but the, the main model Linehan uses is this um, genetic vulnerability uh, combined with environmental triggers or traumas or small t traumas. She used to have big t traumas as the trigger and results in a certain state. So you have this vulnerability. So you'll have a person that feels emotions really, really fast. It's really, really intense, mm -hmm. and then it lingers. It doesn't go away. And so we all know people that aren't like that, and we all know people who are like that. Sometimes family, people we care about, mm -hmm. they'll feel emotions really, really fast, they'll stay, and then they'll like linger and sort of thing. And when you take someone like that, and you combine that with multiple experiences of being invalidated, of not being heard, uh, not being valued, not being cared for, all of a sudden they don't learn how to label and name emotions. They don't learn how to learn from these different experiences. They, the experiences keep happening uh, again and again, and they don't have the ability to shift their state. And so they're just stuck in this intense state. And so you can imagine like a metaphor could be like you have a mother who's doing her best to soothe the baby. She's doing her so best to soothe the baby, but the baby's just not being soothed. And the baby's screaming, and the baby's yelling, and the baby's crying, and the baby's throwing things, all that kind of stuff. And finally the mother gives up, puts the baby in the crib, and the mom leaves. And so you have an interaction where the baby's unhappy and trying to get soothed. The mother's trying to soothe, but can't, and is unhappy and left. And then the whole cycle perpetuates. And this is the same pattern that happens throughout people's lives. So you can imagine they come to their doctor's appointment, right? The subway was closed. The elevators were broken. They're 15 minutes late. They took four hours to get there from outside of Toronto. And what does the administrator say? I called the doctor. The doctor can't see you. You're 15 minutes late. You have to go home and reschedule. <laughs> of course they're going to yell. You're laughing, but it's yeah. absolutely... They didn't well, have a chance. Because we know those patients. Yeah, right? they <laughs> didn't have a chance. And, and then the administrator is trying to be polite. Look, you know, we don't tolerate violence. We don't tolerate yelling. We don't tolerate this. And the, So the exact same thing that was happening with the baby and the mom happens both layers, and then it's happening again in front of the clinic. Right. Right? Uh, and so it's it's one of those things where... People that tend to have these, these experiences, this therapy is actually very, very helpful for them. Okay. Uh, and, and part of it is uh, how it helps the therapist learn how to interact with someone in that combination of acceptance and uh, change. Um, and then the other part is through the actual skill and the uh, therapy. And so the therapy itself is evolving dramatically. It's evolved dramatically. And, and the way that it was first designed, it was very, very intense. It was six months to a year long. Uh, and then you had these great scientists like Marshall Linehan, Shelley McMain in Canada. She's probably the premier um, borderline personality DBT um, scientist uh, in Canada, although I might, be, I might be wrong. In my opinion, she, she is. Okay. Uh, and um, and they keep studying this disorder, these symptoms with different subgroups trying to figure out what's the effective component. So it's evolved dramatically since. But before when it came out, what would happen is that you'd have to have the diagnosis to get into the programs. The programs would be six months long, and there's four main components to it. So what are those components? So one is the group therapy skills counseling. So there's 24 sessions, 
where uh, it's a group therapy session where you learn four different subsets of skills. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, uh, and interpersonal effectiveness. Okay. Uh, and the mind mindfulness is the foundation. So you'll do two sessions of mindfulness, then you do four sessions of something else, then two more sessions of mindfulness, uh, four or six sessions of something else, etc., etc. So mindfulness is the ability to be aware of what's happening inside you and around you, and also the ability to choose where you put your attention to. Distress tolerance is a thing that you can use when your emotions are so intense you can't use logic and you try to get your logic back on board. Emotion regulation are the skills that allow you to ride those waves when they come. So for example, we both know in weeks where we sleep well, eat well, um, manage our stress, get all of our work done, our buffer is bigger, we can handle more chaos and shit when it comes up. Right. And so emotion regulation is what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis to increase that buffer. And interpersonal effectiveness covers very strategic approaches to when you talk to others. And a lot of times, ideally you want all three, but sometimes you have to focus on one, and it's either getting what you want, maintaining the relationship or maintaining self-respect and, and it just really covers those things so you have these these sessions there so that's a big part of dialectal behavior therapy and one of the reasons I learned it was because there's data to suggest that the skills groups alone without the other three components can improve people's symptoms of depression anxiety and reduce their substance use whether or not you have the diagnosis of borderline personality right so that's why it was important to me okay so meaning learning mindfulness is good for everybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the mindfulness that you're teaching, is it the same mindfulness that you would teach to everyone? Or is it kind of... Yeah. So, so mindfulness is, is very nuanced and uh, complicated. Yes. Uh, a lot of these uh, people, I mean, I, I hope I say this in the right way. Like you look at John Kabat-Zinn, you look at Marshall Linehan, you look at Stephen Hayes. They all go to these Eastern... I don't know if you call them temples, monasteries. They spend three to six months there, fully living, breathing the culture. And they'll take the component that speaks to them and they'll bring it back and they'll embed okay. it in a psychotherapy. And so there's a few different variations uh, to it. But in this version, it's a specific skill that you can learn and practice and build up that muscle. Okay. Makes sense. So one part is the skill-based groups. Right. The second part is the individual therapy. So for those six months, you see a therapist for about one hour every uh, week. Okay. And what do you do in that session? You do a check-in. Uh, you might review whatever meds, all this stuff. But then you have to figure out what was going on. Was there anything life-threatening? Because we need our patients to stay alive, right? The therapy is not going to work if they don't stay alive. At least that's what Marshall Linehan says. And so if there's any suicide attempts, you'd have to talk about that first. If there's any therapy interfering behavior, so they haven't done their homework, they show up late, you show up late, you don't return their phone calls, they don't calls. You talk about that second. And the last part is quality of life. And it's controversial where um, substance use fits into that. So some people put substance use as a quality of life issue. Where do I put it? I put it as a life-threatening issue because fentanyl kills. And so for me, that's a life-threatening thing. And then what they do with that is they go through a behavior chain analysis. And we'll do another session where we'll go through that in detail because I think it's so important as addiction or substance use or psychiatry or psychology or caseworkers, we think behaviorally. But so you figure out the dangerous thing, you go through it, then you also have a diary card where you're learning all the skills and you're applying them and practicing them and you have certain goals you're shifting. The third part is actually phone coaching. So they literally have 24-hour access to a pager when they're going through the therapy. Okay. And so the patient can actually call and say, hey, but the thing is they have to call before they do the dangerous thing. So before they do the substance, before they self-harm. 
And then what do you do as a therapist who answers the phone? You say, what's the skill you need right now? And then they have to figure it out. And they'll get upset. They'll understand. This is happening. No, no, no. What's the skill you need? And then they'll be like, oh, interpersonal effectiveness. You know, my mom, I'm really unhappy with my mom. But they're like, well, you know, it might be interpersonal effectiveness, but you're also screaming at me right now. You're screaming and you're yelling. Uh, do you think maybe it might be something else, right? And so you try to help them what skill do they need, right? And so a lot of times it starts with distress tolerance and then you go down the thing. But if they've actually self-harmed, they have to go to the eMERGE. The fourth part of the therapy, I think, is the most fascinating because there are several different ways people describe it. Um, some people call it therapy for the therapist. Other people call it as an adherence tool to make sure that you're following the treatment. And so once a week, you meet with all the therapists that are a part of your team, uh, and uh, you have about an hour, so everyone says how much time they have and how much time they Sorry, have. Sorry, the therapist meets with the other therapist? Yes. Oh, okay. The client's yeah. not there in this no, scenario. Okay. No, Okay. because the, the thing is, when you're working with somebody that has complex trauma or borderline personality or someone that's really vulnerable and you really care about them, you sometimes become a bit enmeshed. Right? And so you mm -hmm. want to help them so much, you go on that roller coaster with them, 100%. or you're so worried that they're going to harm them that you detach almost to an unhealthy degree. And so by having these therapy for the therapist, you get to get advice from your colleagues, like, am I following the therapy? And so in that session, what will happen is that you'll do, um, you'll decide how much time you need, and you'll figure out, does anyone have any issue that's life-threatening, therapy interfering, or quality of life, and you'll divide up that time. But it really allows to make sure you're adhering to the principles of dialectical behavior therapy. Yep. It's kind of a debrief for the therapist. Yeah, a yeah. debrief, but also it's a regroup. Yeah. It's almost like a timeout. Like, okay, as a team, what do we do here? Yeah. Like, like, yo, well, you know what? Even though you're doing this, the person's still self-harming, or they're showing up late for the appointments, or they missed a couple of groups. Do we call them? How do we get them to come in? Right. All that kind of stuff. There's multiple other components uh, to it. Um, this book here is called the DBT Skills Training uh, Manual. Uh, it's the second edition. It's by Marshall Linehan. And it really covers all the basics of running a, a group. And when you buy it, you get a CD or an online link to a PDF that has all the handouts uh, to okay. it. There, there's another book by Kelly Kerner that, um, uh, while there's another book for what DBT is, the Kelly Kerner book, uh, which um, I'll also link, is phenomenal because it describes what do you do in a therapy session? So, for example, we for might, patients that in, in a DBT therapy yeah, session, okay, yeah, an individual okay. DBT. What okay. do you do? How do you say it? She has like demonstrations. What do you focus on? She shares how she does it. So, for example, for the validation chapter, it's about 10, 15 pages, and it covers all six levels of validation with all these examples. Right, and so it's just a bit of a deeper, uh, deeper dive, right, yep. uh, into it. And for me, I, I find those things especially useful because when we have an experienced therapist who's done it for a while, they know how to really capture all the relevant and useful details. And and sometimes you can't uh, get that by by learning or memorizing a textbook. Right, right. So what I've talked about today is the therapy for borderline personality disorder. I went over the diagnostic criteria of borderline personality. I talked about Marsha Linehan, who's developed one of the four evidence-based treatments for borderline personality disorder, but DBT is the main one that's available in, uh, in Canada. Uh, and I shared the broad therapy uh, components, and I also shared the couple of textbooks where I learned. The part that I left out was that I actually did a course, so I did 10 weeks of a three-hour course, and then I also attended a full 24-week DBT uh, group 
uh, as an observer, and then I joined the supervision sessions afterwards. Okay. I also spent two years as part of a consult team, so the therapy for the therapist, I think. And then I was also meeting with individual patients during that time as well. So I'm not an all-star by any means, but I've dived deep enough that um, I believe in the therapy for certain patients. I believe there are certain ways that you can package it. Uh, and for substance use, I think it's a phenomenal uh, tool that will complement all the other things that are readily available for people who use drugs. Interesting. Okay. Uh, I think I think I'll leave it here, but there there's opportunities down the road for further deep dives. So, okay. for example, I think having one session where we go through the behavior chain analysis yeah. would be helpful. And there's two ways to do that. One is you could um, talk about something that you do that you want to stop doing. Yeah. Or you could talk about something you're supposed to do but you haven't done. Could I ask a couple questions? Yes. Let's go through it. All right. So, just again, maybe not. I mean, maybe they'll border on border on DBT borderline. questions, border on borderline. Uh, but just whether it's supporting people that have this diagnosis or 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 the therapy itself, and a lot of the things you spoke to, just sort of that. I like that idea of that debrief because um, with some of these folks, their lives are so chaotic, and from a case management perspective, to have. Um, you know, these the, the, the situations where individuals that would require like full time, when I say full time, I'm talking about 24 7, you know, case management almost, right? Where it's like that's all you're doing is this individual, right? You'd need like two shifts of you, something to cover yeah. some, some, of, the, some yeah. of the chaos, and, and you yeah. can get stuck in it. Yeah, and, and the, the challenge is that all of us, I believe, who work in this field, uh, we're wired for compassion. Yes. And when you're wired for compassion, it's so easy to get pulled in. Yeah. Um, some, uh, some of my colleagues are very much aware of the medical legal risk. And so sometimes they seem a little bit rigid around, oh, we need a referral form, we need this, this is the start time, if you're late by 15 minutes, it's cancelled, all of that stuff. And they won't call you in between sessions. And the reason is because they've probably had experiences where they've gotten pulled in and they've ended up on the roller coaster. Yeah. And they know if they set that frame, there's sort of more options there. Yeah. The other thing is that um, I suspect a lot of case managers that are stuck with these long-term clients have some of these patterns of behavior. And they may or may not have borderline personality, they may have complex trauma, they may not have had positive uh, mentors to help learn healthy coping skills. But then we have these therapists that might have had a two-year diploma or three-year diploma that are seeing all these complex patients going to their home, they're going on that roller coaster, yeah. and the psychiatrist is like, oh, the patient's not coming to the appointment, I can't see them, I can't help. And so so I, I just think like um, when we did training, this is like seven, eight years ago, and when I learned this, uh, the caseworkers loved this content. They loved learning about it, they loved sharing their cases, Absolutely, they loved yeah. sharing what worked. And honestly, there was such a, a dialogue um, around it uh, and, and it really allowed them to leave with hope, right? Because when you're wired for compassion, you blame yourself when the person's not better, you blame yourself for not giving enough, all that kind of stuff. And I, th I suspect there's more people that are wired for compassion case management that need to learn how to set those boundaries and limits and need the proper infrastructure and support to be able to do that. Yes, for sure. And then the, the second thing is there is going to be a subset where they might have so rigid rules and boundaries, they need to create some of that flexibility to hook in some of these tough-to-engage patients. Yeah, and and also I guess the other question I have is that you know, you if you're not doing one of these structured sessions, a DBT session, trying to you know kind of tips of of, of engaging with 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 folks with this diagnosis, sometimes you know you you opt not to engage at all. I mean, yeah. and and maybe that's you know I admit I I've done that because I know that that there's almost no I've not heard any trick to 
or any technique to sometimes like because there's no right word to say right it's um you know a, you can't compliment it some I mean, of these it depends people. on the state. It depends on the state and it depends yeah. on the context, but you're absolutely right. There's certain times where almost everything you say would cause more harm. Right. Right? Uh, and then, so are you, is it better not to say anything? But that's where it gets tricky because yeah. when, you, when you're not saying anything, you have to ask yourself, is this for the patient's best interest or is this for my best I interest? Know. And, and I know, so I when, admit that, yeah. That. Yeah, and so we, we have other signs where maybe this is something where we need some more support. So, for example, if I, if I have a day where I'm doing inpatient consults and there's someone that I end up seeing always at the end of the day and then I always run out of time, right? Like if I always run out of time then it's the end of the day, then I say, oh, I'll see you tomorrow and then run out again. So that tells me there's something going in the process where it's more on my side yeah. that I'm sort of uh, avoiding. Um, and, and I think like... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think there's a lot of value in uh, therapy for the therapist, but it's not actually therapy for the, it's just like group supervision. Some places will have these pods that meet weekly where they talk about all their, their cases and they get guidance and suggestions, you know, uh, for it. Uh, I think uh, knowing different communication strategies are very helpful. Uh, knowing what your role is in an encounter is uh, very, very helpful. Um, and sometimes you might flip between MI. So for example, in MI or motivational interviewing in healthcare, you might be able to say, hey, we have 40 minutes today. So for 20 minutes, we can talk about whatever you want. For the last 20 minutes, we have to talk either about housing or about something else. And But it's hard to do, right? When someone, there's a fire to put out, you end up putting a fire. Yeah, and so at common, the end of that 20 minutes, when they say, well, you don't care about me, then I'm, you know, this is, this is not, uh, you know, you're trying to kill me. You don't, you know, this is what you do. And this is what the hospital does to me. You know, you get all this kind of, you know, cycling on, on some of these messages that, you know, it's really hard to yeah. build from, right? And it's mm -hmm. like, well, I know what you meant by that. I, you know, it's like, oh, you meant this, but, you know, it's this, this kind of, you know, behavior that gets you trapped. One thing that I always uh, tell myself is that um, whatever problems I'm having with the patient are the same problems that led them to come and see me in the first place. Yeah. So they may be having similar problem with their, their family, their siblings, their kids, their parents, their For workplace, sure. all that kind of stuff. And so whether it's desire to overly help and then they don't want it or this fear that I'm going to offend them, like whatever it is, that's what other people are dealing with as well. Yeah. Um, I think it was a famous uh, psychiatrist that used to say this, so it wasn't one of my, my quotes. And so I just, I, I think this is why um, learning the art of engagement is so important. Yes. But also learning the principles of behavior change are also important. Because the last thing we want is whatever this person is in crisis bringing out in us, we want them to learn the skills so when they have a job, when they have a relationship with someone they love and care about, uh, when they reconnect with their family, whatever it might be, that they have healthier strategies to interact with them that don't damage those relationships. Yeah. I love metaphors. I don't know why I say that. I really do love metaphors. And and one thing that I think about, especially with relationships with family, I forget with some psychiatrists that said this, relationships like a rope, right? And every time there's anger or yelling, it's like acid on that, that rope. And there might come a point where the acid is so much that it breaks. And you can still tie it up. It's, the rope is still there, but it's never as strong as it was before. And, and when I think about um, things that are important to the people that I work with, the patients that I work with, I just I want to do my best to help them so that they're not adding to the acid, to the, the ropes in those relationships that are there. Makes sense. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jay. All right. Take care.